electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. All right, thanks a lot, Carl, and welcome to the Halftime Report. I am Frank Holland, in for Scott Wapner. Another huge rally on Wall Street, the best start to a quarter since 2009. The question today, should you buy into this rally, and what bargain should you be buying right now? We will debate that and much, much more with our investment committee today. And joining us is Stephanie Link. And right here with me on set, Liz Young and Josh Brown. Great to see all three of you. Let's start with a check on the markets this hour. Stocks building on yesterday's huge rally. The Dow back above 30,000. The S&P on track for its best day since mid-July. The Nasdaq showing some leadership here, up more than three and a quarter percent. We also are always watching bond yields. The 10-year 10 10 year yield extending its decline and trading at just about 3.6 percent, down from more than 4 percent at one point just last week. And with this set up, that's where we begin. Liz, Josh, great to have you here right in front of me. Liz, I'm going to start with you. Are you buying into this rally? Are you a believer? Today? Maybe not. I think you have to look at this over a little bit longer of a time frame. I'm not going to say look at this over years, but look at what happened in September. We had almost a 10 percent down month in September. This is a nice little relief bounce. And I think, frankly, that's all it is. We're looking at possibility of the Fed becoming more dovish. I think that would be a mistake on the part of the Fed at this point with CPI still at 8.3. So I don't think that that's a realistic turn. But I do think that some of the data is slowly worsening, which frankly is a good thing. But I do think that yesterday and today are probably a little bit of an overbuying bounce. Josh, same question. Well, you want to you want, look, you want to respect price. And actually, if we were to close right where we are right now, um, we would be up five point four percent over two days. And that would be the best two day return. You have to go back to April of 2020 coming out of the pandemic. So there is no question the bounce is powerful and almost everything is participating. Ninety eight percent of stocks are up. Um, you've got uh, every all 11 sectors in the S&P higher. So fine. Let that run its course. Um, but if we're saying, like, the, the reason is bond yields have come down, okay, I understand that. If we're saying, if we want to take it further and say this will continue because the Fed is on the verge of pivoting, stop for a second and let's think through the implications of that. If they are on the verge of pivoting, it obviously isn't because of anything going on in the stock market. So it must be something going on in the real economy. And that's not necessarily a great thing. So I agree with Liz. Look, this is a lot of fun. I was on the show two weeks ago saying I think there's going to be a big bounce. I was early. I was wrong, blah, blah, blah. I bought stuff anyway. It's green. I'm not like trying to pour you know, cold water on everything. I'm just saying these things happen in bear markets. And the bigger, more vicious the bounce, the more obvious it is that it is part of a bear market bounce. So guilty until proven innocent. All right, Steph, wish you were here, but also want to know where you're at when it comes to this bounce. 
<laughs> yeah, and uh, I agree with Liz and, and Josh on a lot of the points. Um, we were oversold um, after the worst September since 2002. And then there is this belief about the pivot. And I agree with Josh about got to be careful of what you wish for on a pivot. Um, but I think that we're thinking it's a pivot or they could pivot because after the UK actually changed their tax policies, they reversed. The RBA raised rates less than expected. And then yesterday we had the ISM manufacturing number, the inflation data in there was the best since June of 2020. And so people are thinking that inflation is, is coming down, it's peaked, it's coming down, it's going to go right back to trend. And I just don't see that. Um, you have core PCE of 4.9% year over year. You have wages and salaries up 8.6% year over year. You have rents still north of 5%, right? And oh, by the way, commodities have actually reversed, right? They're not shooting higher, but they're not going down that much anymore. So I think, and the, and the biggest takeaway that I have is we just don't know what all of these rate increases is going to mean to the economy because it takes such a long time to filter into the, into the economy, like six to nine months or so. So we're going to be slowing massively. I think there's a very good chance of a recession. I do think, though, that expectations got really overdone on the downside. And so perhaps short term, yeah, maybe this pop can last, especially if earnings are less bad than expected. At least I like the risk reward headed into earnings. And we get the big doozies next Friday with the big banks. You know, so let's talk about some of those data points that you just mentioned. You're kind of echoing what New York Fed President John Williams is saying. He says inflation is cooling, but the underlying pressure is still strong. And then today, earlier on CNBC, we had former Fed official Roger Ferguson. This is a quote. I think what's going on in the markets is they are building up expectation of some sort of pivot, which I personally think is premature. So really, Liz, is it premature to think we're in, on the road to a pause or a pivot? I mean, what's setting up this expectation that might happen? Well, I think one of the things that set it up is that the Bank of England seemingly pivoted. And I actually I listened to a podcast that Steph was on just recently, and she made a very good point that one of the mandates of the Bank of England is financial stability. That is not a mandate of the Federal Reserve. Of course, they pay attention to it. And if things fell apart here, it would probably cause them to pause. But things aren't falling apart in the sense of financial markets aren't functioning properly. And that's what happened in the UK. So the Bank of England stepped in. That is not what's going to occur here, I don't think, anytime in the next few weeks. And they still have to focus on inflation. Now, think about the implications, and we've talked about this already, but the implications of if they pivoted, if they got dovish right now with inflation at 8.3 percent, we're in trouble because that really is still public enemy number one. So if they pivot, it really just over time inflates things even further and we end up in a recession either way. So I agree with Steph that at this point, a recession is probable more than it's possible. And we're probably looking at that in 2023. The real question is, how deep is it and how much does the market have to go down in order to actually price it in? We got closer. We got down 25 percent peak to trough. But recessionary pricing is usually about 30, 35, 40 percent. So we probably have to cross that down 30 percent mark. And we're not quite there yet. Yeah, the Fed seem really steadfast in their position. They're going to keep hiking rates to cool inflation. Are you worried at all, Josh? They're making a policy error by continuing? I mean, I, I worry about a lot of things. But, you know, you, you, you try not to make investment decisions from the basis of we're going to have a worst case scenario. Like eventually we will have a worst case scenario. But it's not it's not common. It doesn't happen all the time. There there is a, a rich and long history of the Fed raising rates, going too far, then having to correct themselves. This is just like part of the 
This is part of the backdrop of being an investor. There's never going to be no risk. There's never going to be no uncertainty. And actually, when people are acting as though they're very certain is probably when you're about to get into big trouble. That is not the situation right now. Um, we've had a substantial decline in investor sentiment, one of the biggest, one of the biggest drop-offs in confidence and sentiment any of us have ever seen who are living today. Um, the market very much understands what the risks are here of the Fed going too far or another central bank doing something stupid or a geopolitical issue caused by uh, instability of food prices. It's a whole long list of things to keep in the back of your head. But you know what? As I always say and have been saying on this network for 12 years, invest anyway. Yeah, but I mean, the concerns about a Fed mistake, they just seem to be growing. I mean, today, J.P. Morgan out saying they're increasingly worried about central banks, including our own, making a policy error. And even the U.N., just to be clear, not the full U.N., the U.N. Conference on Trade and Development, saying that policy mistakes could trigger a worse recession. They did it already. But the policy policy error... In all fairness, they're focused more on emerging markets. So go ahead and say what you're going to say. Well, the U.N. is focused on emerging markets. I, I understand that. The policy, that's basically, it's India say, which has kept rates high the whole time and really hasn't had the same inflation as the rest of the world. Be, you know, emerging markets are very, very susceptible to a strong dollar, very susceptible to global trade. It's perfectly understandable. But for, for investors right now, the concern about will they make a policy, they already did. This is the cleanup of a previous policy error. We had two years in, in which uh, housing prices went up 20 percent back to back. We had a record high stock market and they kept their foot on the gas for like a year after most sane people were like, why are we still doing stimulus? I don't understand. Omicron. So that's what they did. This is the cleanup. The the policy error, if you're worried about it, we're living in it. This is this is the result of a huge policy error that will never be forgotten. And a Fed that is very quickly trying to undo that. They know what the error was. Uh, They're trying to undo that. That's already our reality. So now you're going to worry, like, will they go too far? Arguably, that's probably less bad um, than to not go far enough. So really, a lot of the argument is not, should we be at 4% interest rates? If CPI is at 8, yeah, we should, at least. The argument is how fast. And do you want to allow for the earlier hikes from this particular hiking cycle um, to manifest themselves before you decide how many more you might need? That seems to be the real debate, not the, the terminal rate. Um, you know, I think a lot of us would agree it would probably be better to get there sometime in the middle of the right. first quarter than try to do everything before Christmas. But, Josh, in all fairness, that may be the debate that you're having and Liz Young's having on Wall Street, but the Fed doesn't seem to be having that debate. They seem to think keep the foot on the gas pedal and keep going. And, Steph, break. I want on the break. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry, on the yes, break. Sorry, I agree. I mixed up your metaphors. I apologize. Steph, over to you. Do you think that <laughs> the Fed's on pace for an error, or do you think this is the cleanup? Yeah, I do think. I think they were behind starting out. They should have been increasing um, rates a year ago, and they didn't. And now the economy is slowing because of all the limited stimulus. We had record stimulus in monetary policy and fiscal policy over the last three years. That has been waning this year, and that is also causing us to slow down. So they are now increasing aggressively without, without stopping and seeing if it's impacting the economy. So we're slowing, they're raising, it's a bad combination. Policy errors mean recession. And so if you ask me if they're making one, I do think so, because I do think in 2023, we're very likely to see a recession. Now, we again, I wanna emphasize, we are pricing in a lot of bad news, because even though the S&P is down 20%, 
there are stocks that are still down 40 and 50 and 60 percent. And I'm not talking about the non-earners. You know, I'm talking about the Nikes of the world and the Starbucks of the world and the Targets of the world. All of companies that I've been buying and adding to uh, just added to Occidental. That one actually is up, but I like the, the energy story in the sector as well. So I think there are things out there you can buy if you have a long-term time horizon. It's not going to get fixed in the next two months, three months, or uh, whatever the time frame is in the short term. Well, speaking of that, we're hitting earnings season coming up. Liz, how do you see all this impacting earnings as we go forward? So the the impact to earnings, the reaction in earnings has been delayed at best. I mean, many of us, self-included, had been calling for uh, earnings to be revised downward much earlier than this and much more than this. It's slowly working its way into the system. So we're seeing revisions for 2023 now. As we start this earnings season in a couple weeks, I think we're going to hear a lot more messages that are not quite as rosy. But here's what the market has been seemingly tricked by is we keep revising the earnings targets right. down and then we beat these lower targets and suddenly everybody gets excited. At some point, that's going to stop. So we're going to revise the targets down. Maybe we beat them, but the market isn't quite as impressed anymore. I think that the timing of this is in this next quarter, in these next couple months, where you see the market finally flush out those those last sellers and we get to a point where we've hit some of the extremes, we've seen revisions in earnings, we've got a big down day that's big up in volume, and then we sort of level out and maybe end up in a range for a while before we can find upside after the recession next, scare Next clears. week's a great test of that. You're gonna, yeah. So like you're gonna hear from, I own JP Morgan, you're gonna hear from JP Morgan next week, and we all already know that capital markets business disappeared this quarter. Um, but we also know that for the banks that were disciplined and held back capital and can now start making loans at three, four, five, six, seven percent, that might not be in the numbers and that could actually be an upside surprise. And a lot of this stuff is going to be glass half full or, or glass half empty. It's hard to know, even if you knew the number now, how the market might, might react to it. Josh, give me a second. Stephanie, we're going to get to you. First, we're going to get to some breaking news that's just crossing the wires right now. Uh, according to Bloomberg, Elon Musk has said it proposed that the Twitter deal will proceed at $54.20 a share. That was the original deal. Uh, again, Elon Musk saying uh, the Twitter deal can proceed at $54.20. Right now, we're seeing Twitter shares up of almost 13% right now. Liz, I'm going to come back to you with this one. What's your reaction? Well, I can't talk about individual names directly. I think it's amazing that uh, one statement can move a stock like this. There's still so much uncertainty in this whole deal. I would be skeptical to, to really make a decision today. So, Josh, I'm giving you a second to gather your thoughts. I don't know if you remember, you and I, we were actually on the set just a few feet away from where we are right now doing a special when this news first broke. Did Elon Musk tried to get out the deal. <laughs> well, we the did an hour. We did an hour. Forget. The people watching halftime. Yeah. I'm reminding the people at home. We were, you, you and I were together. You had some pretty uh, pointed thoughts about this. How do you feel now after all the drama that's unfolded, the court cases, the head of security for Twitter coming out? I mean, what's your take on what we're seeing today? Uh, well, listen, it's, it's the outcome that I think most people who were studying the legal aspect of this had been predicting all along. They were basically saying, look, this is ironclad. Unless Twitter's board wants to back down or renegotiate, this deal is going to happen. It's, it's weird that it went the way it did, but here we are. So it'll be interesting to see what changes happen with the platform. Do we all follow Elon now, like automatically? Like, what are the things <laughs> that we can... Well, I don't really use the platform anymore, so I don't care, but we'll, we'll see.
All right, we got this is a great segue to Mega Cap Tech. Obviously, Mega Cap Tech showing a lot of leadership for the past few days for both the NASDAQ and the S&P. Steph, I'm going to come over to you. Um, what do you think about this rally when it comes to Mega Cap Tech? Just a week ago, we were saying it's not as defensive as you may think. Uh, maybe it's not the right place to put your money. And then for the start of Q4, small sample size, of course, just like a day and a quarter, it's really popping. Um, well, I'll answer that in a second, but I actually would take the money and run on Twitter today. The stock is not trading on <laughs> fundamentals. If Elon Musk does get this deal done uh, and he does pay that price, there's a long time between now and when you're going to see better returns, better earnings, if earnings at all, better revenues, better mo monetization. So I would take the money and run on Twitter. Uh, in terms of tech, large cap tech, I have been underweight tech all year long. I have a barbell uh, of some growth names like Accenture, like Fortinet. I have some value names like IBM, like Facebook like a, a Broadcom, and I'm very comfortable still being underweight uh, in technology. I mean, the bounce is nice, I get it, but if you do think that interest rates are going to stay high, long-duration assets will underperform. So if I am going to own anything within tech, when anything I'm gonna, if I'm going to add to anything, it, more, it would be more on the value side. So it'd be more like I'm, I keep adding to Meta, and I've been wrong, but I keep adding to it because it's cheap. IBM as well, it's, it's a transformation story, and it offers you almost a 5% dividend yield. Broadcom is also a value. One name that I do not own that I'm looking at is Alphabet, because that actually is becoming a little bit more of a value in my mind. It has a five-year PE average of 29 times forward. It's now trading at 16.5 times. And they have scale. They have 87% of search market share, right? And so they get the eyeballs. They also have growth in terms of YouTube shorts, in cloud they're growing, and they're also buying back their stock. So I'm not there just yet, 16 and a half times, but I'm getting very, very close. All right, important to note, uh, Twitter shares up 13% right now. Also, Tesla shares up about 2.5% right now on this news that Elon Musk plans to proceed with the sale, or excuse me, the purchase of Twitter for $54.20 a share. Josh, I'm going to come back to you. I mean, are you a believer in mega cap tech right now? I know in general you are, but as far as buying right now with the rally that we're seeing at the start of Q4. There's been a lot of dispersion in mega oh, cap tech. Josh, I got to stop you just for a second. We okay. actually have our David Faber standing by with some breaking news on Twitter. David, over to you. Yeah, Frank, obviously you've been covering it as well. And we've got the stock here halted right behind me at the New York Stock Exchange. Pending news, pending. That news is apparently going to be that uh, Elon Musk will close the deal at the agreed upon price of 54.20. Perhaps something of a shock, though. Many people, of course, had expected that there would be potentially some sort of a settlement prior to uh, the beginning of a trial, which was set to begin less than two weeks from today in Delaware in front of Chancellor McCormick. Um, now, my understanding is it has been filed with the court. It is under seal uh, at this point. Uh, there was a hearing about it in Delaware, um, again, under seal. But the basics of what have been reported are correct, which is that he has proposed to and has apparently been agreed uh, that he would close the deal on the stated terms. Uh, something of a shock, given many had expected at the very least that he would be willing to go to court. Remember, though, Mr. Musk was scheduled to be deposed by the end of this week. Uh, the 6th and the 7th were the days they were working with, although that was not a certainty. Apparently, his lawyer was going to be deposed as soon as today, but it would appear those depositions will no longer have to take place. Again, we are waiting Frank, for an official uh, confirmation in terms of a press release, but given the fact that um, the stock has been halted news pending, and from what I'm hearing from the court, um, it does appear that this was a very quick and unexpected, perhaps, end. Unexpected in the sense of 
he's paying the price that he agreed to, and a price, of course, that I'm sure all the panelists on the show today would agree is far above what Twitter would be worth were it to be trading anywhere near the, its fair value in the open market. And even if you were to throw a control premium on it, it would still not, yeah. not come nowhere right. near 54.20 a share. But uh, that's where we are right now, Frank. So obviously a very significant uh, uh, piece of news here. Not completely unexpected that we got to something. However, the fact that he's going to potentially pay the agreed upon price would certainly seem to be would be a, a, a big surprise, given how hard he has been fighting to avoid having to finish the deal overall, despite what was, as we've reported for weeks now, the apparent weakness of his overall case. Back to you. Yeah, Dave, before we let you go, I know you've been following this story very closely. In fact, you had plans to be there at the court uh, to follow this trial. Um, we've seen so many twists and turns since this whole thing erupted. I think that's the best way to say it. We've seen Twitter's head of security come out, um, Elon Musk and Jack Dorsey's text allegedly coming out that he would step in. Any sense of were any of those a catalyst for him to say, hey, I'm willing to make this deal at the original terms? That's the right question. I, you know, listen, um, nothing has been going particularly well for the Musk team. I, I think that's fair, just from what you can gather from the in-court, from the hearings that we've, or, uh, that we've listened in on, uh, from the action in the court itself, from Chancellor McCormick's attitude towards them, uh, and from what appears to be at least, uh, you know, uh, some dissembling on their part, I guess, to, 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 to put it simply. Uh, and so you have had many people in the belief that the, court, the case going in was very strong for Twitter. Um, that said, you never know what's going to happen in court. Uh, the expectation, even with a strong case, that uh, Chancellor McCormick would order, order specific performance, which in this case would have forced Mr. Musk to potentially buy the company uh, at the uh, agreed-upon price, still very much an uncertainty. So, you know, hard to say exactly, Frank, what may have brought this over the edge, uh, the edge, so to speak, for him to actually say, OK, forget it. <laughs> you know, we're done. Um, I'm sure we'll learn a lot more. I'm sure I'll learn a lot more. But one would have to believe simply the lack of uh, uh, the strength of their case, the inability really to prove anything close to potential fraud having to do with the presence of and or the preponderance in his case of bots on the platform, whether that actually amounted to a material adverse effect in the merger agreement very difficult. They don't seem to be getting there, even with the whistleblower and the fact that Chancellor McCormick has called them to task on a number of different things in terms of their um, uh, what they have made available or failed to make available. But again, that's all conjecture at this point on our part. So we'll have to wait and see. We'll wait and see for the right. press release, which we're still sitting here sort of wondering when it's going to come. Um, so we will bring it to you as soon as we get more, uh, Frank, in terms of some background here. But He's going to be paying. Let's let's just step back for a minute and remember it's 13 billion in debt from Morgan Stanley. They're not going to be happy about that, given what they're going to have to pay in this market to actually syndicate that debt. They already agreed to obviously a certain range of interest. Um, that's going to cost them and/or the banks not a huge amount, but something. Uh, and then you've got him coming up with what is going to be 31 plus billion in equity uh, to complete this transaction. That ostensibly will be completed very, very quickly. Remember, the reg uh, you know, all of the uh, needed sign-offs have already taken place. So this thing could close very quickly. All right, David Faber, we appreciate it. Uh, we're going to be following your reporting all day. 
We now want to turn over to our Julia Borson, who's also been following this story very closely. Julia, just give us a sense of what this means for Twitter, for Elon Musk to actually acquire this company at the originally offered price of 5420. Well, look, this is a huge vindication for Twitter that it had an airtight agreement. I just want to point out the timing here. We are getting this news today ahead of when Musk was set to do his deposition. That was set for the end of this week. So what this indicates to me is that Musk really didn't think he had a chance in court. The other thing I would point out is that this comes on the heels of the whistleblower coming out with plenty of criticisms of Twitter, but not criticisms that actually supported Musk um, in his attempt to get out of this deal. So the whistleblower's criticisms, the fact that they did not support Musk's issues around Twitter's bots were problematic. Also, just want to uh, go back to some of those um, redacted, uh, th those text messages that we read that were part um, of the discovery process. And all of those text messages, so revealing, but also indicated that Musk really had um, had a sense of the fact that there were bots on the, pro on the platform and that he knew he was going to have to clean them up, which to me indicated that the, the entry of that as evidence into this trial could hurt Musk um, in his attempt to get out of this deal. So all of these things come right before this announcement today and the fact that he probably had a good sense that he wasn't going to win. And that's why we're getting this news now. In terms of what this means for Twitter, this whole situation with Musk has been a massive destruction for Twitter at a time when they face many challenges. This has been challenging um, for Twitter in terms of employee morale, in terms of retention, um, keeping employees focused when we're dealing with hybrid work environments and all of these different issues. So challenges at a time when, when Twitter is already dealing with tough, say, macro environment, um, macro environment around advertising. So to resolve this would be a huge weight off of Twitter's back and really enable Twitter to focus on growing ad revenue, delivering new ad formats. And then, of course, the big question is, once Musk takes over, what kind of changes is he going to make to make Twitter more appealing to a broader range, uh, array of people? And that is the big unknown about what he actually has in plan has planned for the company. All right, Joy, I know we have to, to let you go. I know you have calls to make and uh, other threads on this to follow. But question, when Elon Musk takes over, what kind of workforce is he taking over? Um, I know originally when this happened and there was a, you know, a town hall meeting and a lot of employees had questions and even concerns about being uh, in part of a company that Elon Musk controlled privately. Well, yes, and there are also questions about whether Elon Musk was going to be shifting focus away from Twitter being an ad-supported service uh, and, and whether that could be problematic. I think from what I understand from sources is Musk definitely understands that Twitter needs to maintain the ad business. But as it tries to diversify its revenue streams and grow out other parts of the business, he does need to maintain that core business. I mean, Twitter is among one of many companies in Silicon Valley that has halted its, its employee growth um, during these macroeconomic pressures. Um, but I think it's, it's an employee base that has a lot of questions. And I would expect Musk to want to talk to those employees sooner rather than later to make sure more of them don't head for the door. All right, our Julia Borson, and we know you're on top of the story. Twitter shares up almost 13%. Tesla shares, interesting, up a percent and a half. Just a short time ago, they were up two and a half percent. All right, Josh, I know you said you were finished. I feel like you had more to say, though. I usually do. <laughs> I, well, I want to go back to the Twitter thing. Where are these people going? Like, if you, if you have so much of an issue with Elon Musk, and I understand, like, some of the reasons why you might, this is not the environment where it's like, oh, I'll just jump to another extremely well-funded venture-backed tech startup. Like, that 
world of 2020 and 2021 has like literally vanished. Right. So there are there are not millions of job openings everywhere you look and competitive salaries and people willing to throw stock options at you. Like all of that is now over. So if you're coming from the standpoint of like, all right, I sat here all this time. I wanted to see what would happen. Okay, new boss, new attitude, new everything. I think it's not going to be quite the mutiny that you would have had on your hands if we were saying this last fall as opposed to this fall. Just my my guess. We're going to bring another voice into this conversation. Casey Newton of Platformer, he joins us now on the phone. Casey, thanks for being here on this breaking news. Hey, well, um, thanks for having me. You know, I'm I'm trying to catch up here, and it's remarkable, uh, frankly, how little information we have about what has inspired this change of heart for Elon Musk, who as recently as yesterday was claiming that a massive bot attack was affecting his poll about Russia. So would love to know what's on his mind right now. Well, I think we're all trying to figure that out. But Casey, what's on your mind right now? Um, before Josh and I were here for a special when the news first broke that Elon Musk was trying to get out the deal. And the consensus was this doesn't mean anything for the broader group of social media companies. But what does this mean just for Twitter now being a private company uh, controlled by Elon Musk? As it goes forward, what's the next steps for Twitter? Do we expect to see any major changes to the platform in the near future? Well, I think major changes will probably be on hold while, first of all, we figure out how real is this offer, right? Like, I hesitate to say it, but what makes us think that this is the final twist in the story? You know, what's to say that Elon Musk won't wake up on Friday and you know, think that he's made a huge mistake again? But look, assuming that he is being sincere, that he really wants to acquire the company, um, there is going to be a lot of confusion inside Twitter as employees figure out what this means for, for all of their priorities. So we're essentially turning the clock back to April when the deal was first announced to try to figure out what, you know, the, what, what those implications might be. You know, speaking of turning the clock back, there's been a lot of talk about Twitter transforming into payments or to not having ads. So what's the future of Twitter going to look like as far as just generating revenue under Elon Musk? As far as you know, again, we all know whatever goes on in Elon Musk's head can change day to day. But as of right now, is the plan to keep it ad supported? Is there a plan to move into different revenue streams? Yeah, I mean, if you look at the, the note that he'd sent around to bankers when he was trying to raise equity financing, he proposed uh, subscriptions, uh, leaning into that heavily. You know, he had some very optimistic projections about what he might be able to do there. But at the same time, I mean, th- this business plan was, was sort of something that you might scratch on the back of a napkin, right? I mean, there wasn't a lot of sophisticated financial modeling in there. So I do expect that he will experiment, but it's important to remember that this is a person who leads by whims, and it's, so it's just very difficult to predict what whims he is going to have if indeed he does become Twitter CEO. Casey, this is probably the most far-fetched idea anybody will pitch you on what, what the implications of this might be, but, but hear me out uh, as, a, as a long-term Twitter veteran and I think a, a former power user, uh, isn't the most responsible thing here to just shut the whole thing down? And if, he, and if he did, would, would Elon Musk not become the new George Washington, like, like almost like a, a historic figure on like 10 levels higher than he already is for probably saving the world? I mean, look, I, I'm like I'm only half kidding, by the way, only half. <laughs> George Washington. I, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm sympathetic to the idea said. that. Yeah, I'm sympathetic to the idea that, that Twitter has created a lot of harms, and you know certainly many folks would breathe a sigh of relief if somebody pulled the plug on it for good. But look, the idea of a real-time global network of news and, and influencers is out there, and even if Twitter went away tomorrow, I guarantee you 
someone would rebuild something like it. So this is just a case where that idea is kind of out of the barn, and I think we are sort of cursed to uh, live with it indefinitely. All right. All right, Casey, you're tickled pink about this, apparently. Uh, we're going we're gonna to check in with you today, I'm sure, at some point to follow this story. But I'm glad it's giving you a good laugh. Uh, the stock actually jumped, actually halted right now for news pending. But just a moment ago, they were up almost 13%. Tesla shares were at one point up 2.5%, now down about a percent and a half higher. Um, Steph, are, are you there still? I know we've done a lot of stuff. We haven't talked to you in a second. Are you still there? I know you were formerly a Twitter shareholder. I was. I got lucky and I sold it in the 70s a long time ago. Um, you know, look, this company has been troubled with bad execution, elevated costs. They haven't been able to monetize the flagship. Their new products haven't worked. The morale is awful, as was discussed. It trades at 54 times forward. That's expensive. And so, yeah, are, are there a lot of things that Musk could fix? Yes, definitely. And who doesn't love a good turnaround story? But I think this is going to take a really, really long time. And so, that, like I said, you got the stock up 13. We'll see where it opens. I would take the money. And then you can reassess as we learn more about his game plan going forward. Any thoughts about if you were if you still were a shareholder reinvesting in social media, whether it be Meta or Pinterest or any of these other stocks? Well, I own Meta. <laughs> it's been painful <laughs> in a so, very they big all way. Look so bad. I I know, but the the one the reason I stick with this one is because actually they are they are profitable. It's trading at thirteen times, eight times EBITDA. They do have size and scale. They have the eyeballs that the digital advertisers want. They do create return on investments for the advertisers. It may not be as great as it once was, but they still have it. And that's a big deal. Now, can they fix reels? I think they can, but it is taking longer than I had expected. But in the meantime, they've got 20 billion in free cash. They just in kind of announced, it's, it's in the rumor mill, an expense-cutting story of about 10%. And so that's going to save them a lot of money. And so they're kind of doing these things to buy them time so that maybe if Reels does take off or maybe if they monetize WhatsApp, then you can see that operating leverage. But it's going to take time. That's the one that I own. I'm living with it. As I mentioned earlier, I am looking at Alphabet. But I, I think there's too many other names in technology to own uh, that are less controversial. All right. Just to sum it up, Twitter shares halted right now, pending for news. Uh, we're also just watching a, a broader rally in the markets right now. The Dow up over 800 points. The S&P up 3 percent. The Nasdaq showing some leadership up three and a quarter percent. And coming up on halftime, maybe another surprise. You never know. But for right now, chip stocks outperforming today. The group now up 7 percent in two days. Is it time to go bargain hunting in this beaten up center? We're going to debate that and much more. That's next on halftime. Solar installations could triple by 2027 thanks to supportive legislation in the Inflation Reduction Act. That's according to a report by the Solar Energy Industries Association and Wood McKenzie. The report projects the U.S. market will grow by 40 percent more than prior forecasts in that period. Solar stocks have soared this year, with First Solar, Enphase Energy and Jinko Solar jumping double digits. That's your ESG Fast Fact of the Day. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one, which means we do the little things right so that we can keep our promises and you can keep yours too. That's what drives us. To learn how OD can help your business keep its promises, visit odfl.com. 
Old Dominion, helping the world keep promises. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. And welcome back to the Halftime Report. As you can see, we have a rally here on Wall Street. We're also following breaking news involving Twitter. According to reports, Elon Musk has agreed to buy the social media platform uh, under the agreed, under the original terms of $54.20 a share. Twitter shares have been halted pending on that news. We're also watching Tesla stock. Those shares up now 2.5%. They were up 2.5%, dropped down to 1.5%, back up to 2.5% right now. And joining us now to continue this conversation, Dan Ives of Wedbush. Great to have you here, Dan. I don't know who better to have to talk this right now. What do you make of this deal that's apparently been struck for Elon Musk to actually acquire Twitter at $54.20 a share and take it private? Yeah, I think Musk saw the writing on the wall. Going into court in Delaware, he basically right. faced an ugly in court battle. Dan, I, I got to interrupt you. We have our David Faber standing by. Dan, we're going to come right back to you. David Faber standing by at the New York Stock Exchange with some more details about this deal. David. Yeah, thanks, Frank. Sorry to uh, cut off Dan there, but I did want to give our viewers a more sense as to what's going on. Uh, it appears that last night um, a letter was sent from Mr. Musk to Twitter, uh, also filed at the court, although still under seal right now, indicating his desire to drop the litigation and follow through on the deal as already in contract or as uh, specified previously to acquire Twitter at 5420. So basically a letter in which he proposed, we will move forward with the deal. Please drop your, the litigation, Twitter, and I will buy you at 5420 as uh, had been, of course, negotiated uh, earlier this year. Uh, what we're waiting for now is both getting the court involved from the Twitter perspective, is my understanding, so that there is assurances that this is not some sort of um, ploy for them to get them to drop the litigation prior to him actually buying the company. Um, and we're also waiting for news. I'm looking back over my shoulder here for, uh, you know, halted news pending. That news would be the exchange asking Twitter for a comment. Most likely you're going to get Twitter saying, yeah, we got this letter. And maybe it will be released soon. Unclear whether it will be released or whether Mr. Musk will release the letter. Uh, but we are waiting for the letter and a confirmation from Twitter in terms of the news that they received this letter. And then we got to sort of figure out where the court is going to be in all of this in terms of the assurances that obviously Twitter wants that if we drop the litigation, we, we aren't somehow agreeing to do that. And then he's not going to follow through. By the way, as I had indicated earlier, Frank, this deal could close very quickly. There is a 15-day uh, marketing period on the debt that Morgan Stanley, as the leader of the $13 billion in financing, has. But that could easily be waived. Uh, and so you could see uh, as soon as Friday uh, or Monday, uh, Elon Musk 
become the owner of Twitter. Yeah. Uh, but again, before we get there, let's see what they say in terms of the news. Let's see if he releases the letter. But again, to go through it, last night, letter sent from Musk, unexpectedly, by the way. My understanding was there had been no real conversations at all about a settlement, kind of reported on Friday when there was that uh, interesting stuff involving uh, Ari Emanuel. But it, this was kind of out of the blue, a letter sent to Twitter and the court saying, we'll just buy you at 5420 as previously agreed to. Please drop the litigation. And that's where we stand right now, just waiting uh, for the letter itself and for the court to give uh, to give us some comment as well. Yeah, Frank, David, back to you. Dave, by the way, for people listening, your air quotes right there on the news, duly noted. We haven't officially heard from Elon Musk or the company just yet. One question I think a lot of people are asking is, is this deal simply going to be the original deal? I mean, I, I think a lot of people would feel there's been some damage done to Twitter. Um, there's, uh, as you mentioned, uh, some of the, the financiers are on the hook maybe for some more money. I mean, is this just simply proceed with the deal as originally planned and just drop all the litigation? Yes, that's right. Uh, it would be buying the company at 5420 as had previously been agreed to. It would be Mr. Musk uh, coming up with roughly, let's call it, 31 plus billion dollars. Uh, in equity. That would be ahead, obviously, of the $13 billion in debt financing that he's raising via Morgan Stanley. Earlier when I was talking about Morgan Stanley, I was simply making the point that there are certain portions of the financing that they agreed to at certain levels that will, as we've seen with other deals, such as Citrix, will cost the banks. That doesn't mean they're not moving forward with it. Of course they will. Um, uh, and in fact, even though they have a 15-day marketing period, they may not want to even use that and simply could waive that and so we could have a close soon. But yes, Frank, 5420 is the price as originally agreed to. All litigation obviously would end and Elon Musk will own Twitter within days, potentially. All right, David Faber, we appreciate the reporting as always. All right, we're going to turn it back over to Dan Ives. Dan, sorry to cut you off. Obviously, a lot of breaking news coming in here. Um, David Faber, his sources saying that Elon Musk has agreed to buy Twitter at $54.20 a share. Trading halted on the stock right now. Uh, I'm going to come back to you, and I'm sorry to cut you off. What does this mean for Twitter going forward? Look, I think first up for Musk, the writing was in the wall. He was going to lose the court battle, and I think that's why the letter got sent rather than an ugly court battle ahead. For Twitter, there's going to be a lot of questions in terms of the platform, in terms of monetization, and obviously users will have questions as well, obviously as it goes private. But this is really for Twitter. I thought you know, th there was expectations that there'd be a settlement before, but clearly Musk right now realized as a path this was the one to go to rather than being forced by the court to ultimately own it at 5420. So going forward, I mean, obviously, it's going to be taken private. What does this mean for generally the, I guess you want to call it the Elon Musk ecosphere, including Tesla? Does this have any ramifications for the electric car maker? Yeah, in terms of Tesla, I think a lot what the stock that he was going to sell, he's already sold. So I don't view it as much of an overhang there. That, that obviously was an overhang in terms of the first few months. So I think that's more contained here. There still could be some financing questions in terms of, you know, uh, from a debt perspective. So I think that was really the contained risk. And I think for most Tesla holders, they're just glad that this soap opera, this Twilight Zone's over, because it has been overhang in terms of for the past few months. It's been a black eye from Musk, and now ultimately it ends in a bizarre way with him <laughs> owning Twitter at the original price. So just before we let you go, you're convinced as over. We had Casey Newton on just a short time ago, kind of laughing about this story, saying there could be another twist and turn. Potentially, Elon Musk could wake up maybe tomorrow or Friday and say, hey, I changed my mind. But in, in your mind, this is a done deal. 
it's a done deal. Once he went through the court situation, even some of the back and forth over the last week or two, he recognized his camp, recognized writing was in the wall. He needed to get this done. Otherwise, it was going to be a long and ugly court battle. And at the end of that, he was going to own it 54-20 anyway. All right, we got to let you go, Dan, but one last question. Where does Twitter trade at or where does it move after this uh, halt ends? I mean, do you see people piling into this stock or is this oh, still? Yeah, because yeah, I see minimal deal risk regulatory, as, as Faber talked about. You know, this could close pretty quickly. This would trade relatively roughly at deal price. And I think this is something that, you know, I, I think surprised many in terms of the way that happened. You'll see that reaction once it opens. All right, Dan Oz from Wedbush. I have a feeling we're going to see you later on today on CNBC. All right, we're all over this Twitter news. Kara Swisher, she joins us next. Halftime, back in two minutes. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. Back to Halftime Report. Huge rally on Wall Street, as you can see. But first, we're following breaking news involving Twitter. Shares Halter right now on the news that Elon Musk has agreed to buy the social media platform for $54.20 a share. That was the original sale price that Elon Musk agreed to. And after some legal wrangling, it looks like it's going to go through. But right now, we bring in Kara Swisher. Kara, so great to have you here. First, what's Hi. your take? Well, you know, he was. He, I thought he was going to settle at some point, and this is a version of settling. I, I think he probably would have had to pay billions of dollars, so he might as well own it. And he probably got other people's money in part. So, um, you know, he, I think he probably looked at it and said, oh, I have to pay a fine, essentially what is a fine of $6, 7000000000 billion, or I can just own it and pay a little more. I, I, that's what I expect of the calculation. All right. Well, you joined us that day when we first got the news that he tried to get out of the deal. Mm-hmm. You were with Josh and I. And everybody said no real impact on the broader group of social media stocks. But what does this mm-hmm. mean for Twitter itself now, uh, you know, s- supposedly going to be a private company? Yeah, well, well, lucky for this Twitter shareholders. I mean, they had him over a barrel in Delaware. He was not going to win there. So he's going to lose. So this is a question of how is he going to lose? Well, he might as well win by buying it. And, you know, it's a big risk. It's a terrible business. He might lose a ton of money. Um, but, you know, why not? You know, he's throwing the dice here. He's shooting the moon, whatever you want, whatever metaphor you want to use. But, I mean, he, he was going to have to pay something. So I think he probably decided to take control of the situation and pay what he said he was going to say at the time he said he was going to buy it. And, you know, a lot of these texts show that he knew very much about the bots. So that was a problem for him. Um, and so his, all his little tricks to get out of it didn't work. And so he might as well just do what he said he was going to do, which he had to do anyway. Hey, Kara, it's Josh Brown. Good to see you. Is Hi. it? Is it totally outrageous 
um, to think that a year from now we're going to be hearing about the business reasons for why Twitter needs to be merged into Tesla and <laughs> why Tesla will be gaining an incredible advertising uh-huh. platform for all of its products as a result. I mean, we're, yeah. we're giggling, but like it's not totally out of the I'm realm of possibility, right? Yeah, no, I mean, he might, I guess, I suppose. I think he just likes this thing, you know, and I, I think the issue is he, he got buyer's remorse and then forgot legal proceedings. He signed a contract, right? And so you can't, he can do that other places, but not here. And so he was in a, in a corner and this is the best way out of it, meaning he gets to own it at least, even if he's overpaying for it, which he is, um, even if it's a very difficult business, which it is. Um, and maybe he'll figure out something to do with it. So, you know, he gets these figures, he's got some ideas, and uh, and he's certainly got lots of backing of a lot of people. And it also gets him out of the limelight so he can move on to more important things like settling the war in Ukraine. All right, Karen, before we let you go, speaking of what he's going to do with it, a lot of looming questions. We've covered the deal. It looks like he's going to go through at 5420. Yeah. But what about Jack Dorsey? Apparently, they're pretty good friends. They're texting about taking over Twitter. Mm-hmm. Do you see Elon yeah. Musk perhaps letting a former President Trump back on the platform? I mean, what oh, sure. changes could we expect going forward? Oh, he's going to put him back on the platform. A hundred. I, I would. He said it. He said it directly. And I think if it hadn't, if Twitter was running itself, they wouldn't have. Because why get the headache of it? And so he doesn't mind the headache of it, and he likes the attention. So that's going to happen because he said it. Um, uh, and then I think who knows if he'll bring back Jack or not? Maybe um, he needs to find a really good CEO to run this thing. He shouldn't be doing this on on his, in his free time. So um, that's for sure. He's got to find someone significant to run this, and that's a very small pool of people. So you know, the thing is, it has to it has to happen. And and I think Twitter shareholders should be aware just to make sure it's not some game to get out of the, the lawsuit and then restart it again, because it would be very deadly for Twitter to keep in this ongoing series of, of hijinks with Elon Musk. Oh, I'm hearing a little skepticism there. Kara Swisher, thank you well, so much. Well, I don't much. know. Who knows? I just wouldn't be. I, just, I, you know, I guess. All right. Don't want to put think words in your mouth, but Kara Swisher. I don't think it's uncalled for. That's all. <laughs> Kara, you know, you got to expect the unexpected with Elon Musk. Kara Swisher, thank you for calling in. Great to have you here for this breaking news. Elon Musk agreeing to buy Twitter at 5420, a share. And coming up, we're going to go back to Halftime Report, not just Twitter. CNBC revealing its new list of the top 100 financial advisors in the country. The number one advisor on that list, he joins us next with his investing strategy. Stay with us. All right, welcome back to halftime. As you can see, markets off their highs of the day. We're going to get more on that in just a moment. But right now, CNBC unveiling our fourth annual Financial Advisor 100 list. The key criteria include total years in business, average account size, and assets under management. And joining us now is the number one firm on that list, Woodley Farah Mannion, represented by George Farah, Woodley Farah Mannion Principal. George, first and foremost, congratulations and thank you for being here. Frank, thank you very much. It's an honor. So I think the first question is markets obviously up two days in a row, but there's been a lot of volatility in recent weeks and months. How do you navigate the volatility for your clients? First, it goes to buying high quality stocks that pay dividends that tend to be a lot more stable during environments like this. Uh, When we start seeing weakness ahead of us, we start combing through the portfolio looking for stocks that have been disappointing, where management is disappointing, and we Uh, Earlier this year, actually lightened up on two of them, kept the cash on hand. In fact, we're now starting to think that we're at levels that we should be deploying cash rather than raising cash. 
So just last week, we had our big annual event delivering alpha. We heard Ken Griffin say that the 60-40 portfolio is back. Are you a believer? Well, we've never utilized it. Back in 95, when Don Woodley and I started the firm, uh, we were dealing with interest rates that were higher than even today. And we have always adhered that keeping as much of your portfolio in stocks as possible is a long-term winner. We want to encourage clients to keep at least two or three years worth of cash sitting in a short-term treasury or cash in the bank to weather the storm like we've been through these past nine months. But we feel that your prospects for reaching your goals in retirement are improved by keeping as much in uh, the portfolio in stocks. All right, George, your own halftime report. I don't know if you watch, but we talk stocks here. So can you give us your favorite sector right now and a few picks? Yeah, uh, we have three property casualty insurance companies in the portfolio. We own Chubb, which is a multi-line, multinational underwriter, superb underwriter, great valuation, good dividend yield. We own Progressive, which is a great underwriter and innovator in marketing, primarily home and auto. And we also own Arthur J. Gallagher, which is uh, a big international brokerage firm consolidator. And we like the space. We think that uh, they have been, the industry's been in a hard pricing environment for the last three years. Mm -hmm. The hurricane last week should extend that. And we feel that uh, these three firms are really well positioned for that. George, congratulations. Oh, sorry to cut you off. No, that's okay. All right. Well, George, congratulations again. I'm sorry to cut you short. Crazy day here on the Halftime Report. And for anyone who wants to learn more about George's firm and others, you can check out the full list at CNBC.com slash FA100. All right. Quick market check right now off the highs of the day, Liz. But what are you seeing right now? I know you've had to sit on the sideline for a bit of this conversation about Twitter. Yeah, I mean, again, yeah, I think that this is probably a little bit of a bounce that isn't going to last. However, everybody loves to paint us as either a bull or a bear. I don't want to fall in either one of those categories. But if we have a few more stabs downward, there are going to be some really good opportunities out there. And I think we're going to get some good buying opportunities before the end of the year in a couple sectors. Financials I really like. Uh, I still like healthcare, and I'd start to look at some of those cyclicals because if we have a recession, you got to bounce on the other side and things like industrials. All right, certainly watching out for the, that recession, a lot of recession concerns. Time now for final trades. Time flies when you're having fun. Steph, are you still there? Let's start off with you. <laughs> I am still there. A lot of fun today. GXO, stock's down 58% year to date, trades at 14 times earnings. They're a top tier logistics company. and. Uh, they have a great sales pipeline, about $2.3 billion. So a lot of upside, a lot of market share to take. Josh Brown. Uh, I picked the semis as one of the ways I wanted to play an eventual bounce. This is one of the hardest hit sectors in the whole market with some of the highest quality companies. So far, so good. It's a decent sized bounce. I think there could be more in the tank. I'm going to stick around. Liz Young, last word. Gold. It takes a lot for me to say gold, but I think there's more global currency volatility to come and go back to old faithful. All right, that does it for halftime. The exchange begins right now. I bet they're going to talk about Twitter. Thanks for watching. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. From their innovative practice facility 
to unmatch views from the fairway. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with 5G solutions from T-Mobile for Business. Together, we're using AI-powered analytics to expand coaching tools and bringing fans closer to the pros with 5G-connected cameras. This is game-changing innovation. This is the PGA of America with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. 